National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. Over the last month, the leftist regime of President Daniel Ortega has cracked down on the Catholic Church in Nicaragua with several acts of suppression against clergy, Catholic media, and public worship. Last week, the Vatican expressed the Holy See's concern for the situation. The Register's senior editor, Joan Desmond, brings us the story. Then, Register writer Loretta Brown reports on another crackdown, this time one that can have potentially positive effects. Visa and Pornhub are facing a lawsuit that could help curb the powerful porn industry's role in child abuse and sex trafficking. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the National Catholic Register and your host here on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host, Matthew Bunsen. Hello, Matthew. Hello, great to be with you. As always, um, this is an interesting topic, this situation in Nicaragua, and I I can't remember the last time we've covered it here, Um, but it's certainly been on our radar uh, in the pages of the National Catholic Register, Uh, and Joan Desmond has taken a role in in leadership in covering um, what's going on there, Um, interviewing a few months ago an exiled church leader uh, who's now in the United States because he can't go back to his home country, and she took the lead this week in prepping an editorial for the Register, uh, prepping and and helping to write an editorial on Nicaragua. So we invite Joan uh, into this conversation to help shed light on this um, precarious situation for the church and and really a human rights issue in Nicaragua. Welcome, Joan. Hi, Darren, Jeanette, and Matthew. Great to be with you. So, Joan, the situation has has really grown increasingly difficult uh, for the church, and um, it's uh, there have been a series of events just here in August. Uh, I mentioned in the lead, a, a Catholic radio sh- station was shuttered, uh, and then just over the weekend, and of course, this you, you know we were celebrating a solemnity of of the church uh, honoring Mary on, on Monday. And of course, over the weekend, last weekend was a lot of Marian celebration, I, I guess. And in, in this country, there was an attempt to, to have a, a procession um, honoring Mary with thousands of Catholics. And it was stopped uh, by Ortega's regi- regime. Uh, so, so really, the situation just in the past few weeks has, has been escalating. What's this all about? What's going on in Nicaragua? So, Jeanette, you know, the last time the register covered Nicaragua was in earlier this summer when Bishop Baez, who's an auxiliary bishop from Managua, Nicaragua, the capital of the country, uh, shared his concerns about the situation in Nicaragua, which has really been roiled by a, a political crisis that goes from bad to worse. It began back um, in 2018 when the government instituted a pension reform, which provoked huge mass. Uh, demonstrations, and the government then followed up with a a brutal crackdown. Hundreds were killed, thousands more were injured, and that has really set the country on a new path. It was always always unstable, there were lots of problems, but it was still functioning. Now what has happened is, in the ensuing four years, the government has shut down the political opposition, so during the 2021 presidential elections, there were virtually no competition. Daniel Ortega, who came to power in the late 1970s, he's been ruling Nicaragua with his wife, the vice president, Rosario Murillo, for the last 
15 years. So since 2007, Mm -hmm. they have uh, ruled the country. Um, So what's happening now? The situation has worsened after the elections where he just consolidated his grip on power. He's turned his attention to church leaders and pastors, partly because I think they are among the only ones left to defend the rights of people, basic rights, political rights, religious freedom rights, press rights, speech rights. These fundamental rights have always been the preserve of the Church uh, as a focus of defense. And that is happening now in Nicaragua. What happens then? The papal nuncio, who who had been involved mediating talks between the government and the political opposition before the election, was ultimately expelled from the country this past March. Then things went from bad to worse. We have the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa's order. They were forced out of the country this summer. And Bishop Baez told me in an interview this summer his concern is that he's worried that Nicaraguans will feel like this is the new normal, that there's nothing they can do about it. And he's opposed to that because what he says is that the government, to bolster its credibility, is actually using religious terms and evoking the name of Christ to kind of strengthen its credibility. And some might say, well, that's not really working, but you can try, right? And so what happens then uh, when the country is faced with further further, uh, conflict and church leaders are then silenced or expelled? Who is going to call out what is going on in the country and that's where we are now right exactly i mean right now it's it's mostly people outside of the country aside from from the church within the country it's mostly uh people outside of the country i think right i mean who who advocate for human rights um who are are trying to call attention to this uh i mean even uh the u.s commission for international religious freedom um flagged nicaragua in its uh 2022 report as as a you know a very problematic place but I, I've been, uh, you know, as as we've discussed in in our editorial calls and and for our editorial, uh, there's been a, a lot of question about why um, uh, the Vatican hasn't actually uh, spoken out uh, more public publicly on. Uh, on this case, you know, in, in this regard. And uh, while I, I think we've had bishops in the U.S. And, uh, speaking out on it, and the bishops of South America, Latin American bishops have been, have also been been advocating for uh, not simply the church, but for the people, right, uh, in, in Nicaragua. But the Vatican, until recently, has been relatively silent, at least publicly. I mean, we don't know behind the scenes. So what What's going on? The Vatican did speak out um, about a week ago. Yeah, basically, one of the, the Vatican representatives at the OAS, the permanent observer there, that's the Organization uh, for American States. Um, that's kind of a regional group that isn't, isn't perceived as, as especially helpful or proactive in, in kind of monitoring events uh, in the hemisphere. But in any case, it, so he spoke out there. But it was a very kind of neutral statement. It emphasized the Holy See's willingness to support dialogue as part of kind of the norm of democrat society. And that was about as public as, as the Vatican has gotten thus far. And so people, meanwhile, and, and let's just go back for a minute, so we had the expulsion of the missionaries of charity, and we finally find the country in a state of, of really 
serious crisis with um, with Bishop Alvarez of Matagalpa, who's now under house arrest. And I think this house arrest has kind of uh, keyed things up in a way that did not exist mm-hmm. before. Because remember, I mentioned Bishop Bias was already forced to leave. The nuncio has been forced to leave. There are concerns and there are reports that the government is putting pressure on Pope Francis to order the bishop or, or request that the bishop leave the country. So this would be yet another outspoken voice that would be shut down. And, of course, one thing to keep in mind, Jeanette, is when a voice is no longer in the country, it's still important and it plays an important role, but they're able to be more attuned to the dynamics of the country and the situation of the people in a more direct way, right? So it's always good to have church leaders in the country or anyone else in the country grounded in the, the day-to-day reality. But of course. So he, could be, he could be forced out. So groups have gone to Pope Francis directly, a group of NGOs that represent church-affiliated organizations that have been shut down, their funding has been cut off. You know, you have um, private universities that have also been threatened with closure. It's not really clear what their status are, but it's is but it's not looking good they reached out a group of 60 of them reached out to the holy see to and to francis directly this summer this month and asked you know that he speak out that he show his closeness to the people well this oas statement again morally kind of using neutral language was as close as they could get and so what happens then ortega has then taken further action as you mentioned he's now uh, harassing people we meet for uh, conferences and retreats. And so this Congress, which was partly organized in Managua, actually to kind of bring people together as they face this new crisis, there's a huge amount of anxiety with the bishop's house arrest. Well, you know, the government comes and then shuts that down. Um, and then also people who were trying to get to the conference were barred by police. You have this sense of siege and people feeling like they're not being supported by the Pope. And I guess what this brings us to is the Vatican's complicated history of calling out human rights violations. They sometimes have their reasons for not doing it. They may do it in a particular way. The language can seem a little strange to us moderns, but they often want to do it maybe to reserve their right to mediate because they have other ideas about how they want to signal things or because it's simply not their priority. Yeah, Joan, real quick, uh, for people who consider this a, a blast from the past in some ways, Daniel Ortega is probably well known to people of a certain generation uh, for his time as uh, the leader of the Sandinistas. Uh, could you provide a little bit more background to this? Because it's important, I think, to understanding what he's doing here as, as a dedicated, lifelong Marxist. Yeah. Well, I, I think he tried to suggest that he had sort of, you know, uh, shrugged this off because, of course, much has changed in the world since 1979, right? But they basically, so the Sandinistas came to power in 1979. They also had the support of some um, church-affiliated uh, Catholic priests um, who joined the government. It was a time, sort of a heady time with liberation theology being celebrated and people feeling like this government might mark a new beginning. Of course, they, the Sandinistas had overturned the dictator Anastasia Somoza, who was U.S. supported. So that was the start of the Sandinistas in the late 
1970s, and it was the final decade of the Cold War, which ended, as you know, with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Once that happened, groups like the Sandinistas did not have the support they once had. Um, Sandinistas did get some support from Cuba and also uh, later from the Venezuelan government, um, which was Marxist in its later years. And so what has happened since is that Daniel Ortega permitted elections. There were periods where there were free and relatively fair elections. But after 2007, he and his wife, Rosario Murillo, have basically um, acted to try to consolidate power. And I think Nicaragua is a poor country. The opposition forces were somewhat weak, but they had actually strengthened themselves. And I think mounted a pretty successful challenge. At least that was his concern. And as a result, he shut them down, um, actually arresting, had a story about this, arresting top opposition leaders, mostly, most of whom, of course, are active Catholics. Their wives were forced to, to flee the country and have been um, operating in the U.S. trying to support them, also in Central America and trying to help them get the word out. That's where things stand at this moment. And again, the Vatican, whatever it may be doing behind the scenes, has really not done very much. When the Holy Father doesn't speak, you know, a, a dictator like um, like Ortega can use that vacuum to right. create his own messaging. And that's what I'm afraid of, and many others are afraid of now, because um, what will happen now if the Holy Father doesn't speak out and some of these other voices are, are crushed? You know, like Bishop Alvarez, who's now under house arrest and could be forced out of the country. Absolutely, Joan. It's a it's a crucial situation. I'm so grateful for your coverage of it uh, at ncregister.com. And I encourage our listeners to, to feel this concern and to, to read about it. Um, go to ncregister.com, uh, search Nicaragua, and, and you can find the coverage that Joan has done, our editorial, as well as CNA's coverage of this um, crucial uh, and sensitive situation. Joan, thanks a lot. Take care, Jeanette. When we come back, Matthew and I will talk with Loretta Brown, uh, the, ne- the Register's national correspondent, about the latest move to crack down on the devastating power of the pornography industry. This is Register Radio on EWTN. Stay tuned for more. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register, and I'm here with Matthew Bunsen, my co-host here on Register Radio. And this week, uh, this topic is a bit 
a bit heavy, um, but it crucially important, I think, um, in building a culture of life and a culture of love uh, in our country, in the world, really. Um, and it's the topic of pornography. And um, Matthew, there's really been a kind of a groundbreaking uh, case uh, that's come to light um, in recent weeks um, involving uh, Pornhub, which is probably one of the biggest distributors of pornography on the internet, and Visa. And so many of us have Visa cards, and you kind of wonder what's the connection here, but it's the way many people pay for porn. And so there has been a case involving Pornhub and Visa and a victim um, of, of uh, I guess, the pornography industry, we can say. Um, and it's actually proceeding um, in a rather groundbreaking way. So Loretta Brown's been covering this story for the Register over the past couple of years because it's something that's been developing. Um, so Loretta, we're very grateful to have you on on this important topic. Yeah, happy to, to talk about this and kind of raise awareness about what's going on here. Exactly, exactly. So I, I very vaguely described this case. Um, the story you, um, you wrote, it's called Visa and the Victims of Pornhub, colon, a new lawsuit could bring greater accountability to the industry. And of course, the people you talk to, who many advocates um, for 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 survivors of sex trafficking or victims of the pornography industry have really applauded this, as I said, as a breakthrough case. Um, why? What, what do they see about this case? Um, I, maybe I should start by saying, what happened? What is this case? You know, who brought this forward and, and, and how did they wrap Visa into it? A lot of questions in one, but you start. <laughs> well, yeah, so this case... Um this case involves uh, a young girl who she was kind of uh, coerced, pressured into to making a kind of an explicit video when she was uh, 13, um, very young, and um, this kind of haunted her. She was bullied. Um, she There was this very moving column in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof about how she, um, she ended up homeless, and she would try to get the video taken down, and it would be re-uploaded, and so this was just something that it was it, Pornhub didn't have you know things in place to um, to really address this in a in a permanent way at that time, and so it it raised a lot of outrage at the time, and she received legal aid, and so this is her lawsuit, uh, Serena Flights, um, and she's she's you know uh, going after Pornhub for for monetizing you know the the coercion, the abuse she experienced as a minor, right? So that's the other thing; she was a minor in this video. Um, so that's illegal <laughs> to to have that kind of content involving a minor. Um, so she, yeah, she's going after Pornhub, but also Visa because at the time they they, as you said, like this is how people pay for for this sort of content was through Visa and other um, merchants. And so, in the wake of this, Visa did suspend, um, you know, some of the direct payments involved, but then they still were working with the advertising arm, so they were getting money from the advertisements on videos like this. And so in this lawsuit, what's what a big deal is here, like what, what's so new about this, and uh, is that um, Visa tried to get dismissed from the case, saying, you know what, like we are so far removed from this action, um, you know, we can't police the content of like all these different transactions. And the judge said, no, you know, the Visa knew enough, you know, is alleged to have known enough based on what we can see about the timeline here. Um, you know, it was after the, 
the New York Times piece that they continued to work with this advertising arm of Pornhub. So the judge here is saying, no, they they are going <laughs> to stay in this case and have to answer for, um, you know, the monetization of content like this. And so the big part of this is that um, I talked to a, a lawyer who works, um, you know, on these sorts of cases, and she was telling me that to hold these financial institutions accountable, that's so key because so much of the porn industry does involve coercion and even trafficking and these heartbreaking cases. I mean, honestly, it was difficult to work on this story right. because, yeah, there are just some heartbreaking cases out there that, you know, anyone would, would just pause and be like, whoa, that's that's so concerning that any website would, would turn a blind eye to this in some way, would, you know, have advertisements making money off of these just like terrible abuse. Um, so this really is, this lawsuit is a hopeful sign for, for so many people that work to help the victims here because Visa and Pornhub, this case is proceeding against them and they are going to have to, you know, they, it is known, you know, that they knew a certain amount. Um, you know, Serena Flights, I think, pretty, like, establishes that pretty well, um, you know, her, her attorneys do in, in this case. So it'll be so interesting to see how this proceeds. You've uh, uh, documented in your piece uh, the importance of a New York Times expose on all of this. Um, what exactly was this? Yeah, so it was called The Children of Pornhub, and it just talked about um, the amount of uh, sexually explicit material involving children, including you know rape and, and trafficking, young children too, and the fact that Pornhub has just escaped accountability for that, essentially, right? So, and, and some of the stark things there were just, um, you know, sexual assault victims, well, actually, like, abduction victims being found on videos on there, and and then, you know, perpetrators being made accountable. But, but Pornhub would just, um, in some cases, there was even, there was a case of one lady who talked about, um, you know, being a victim of, of assault and then finding the video, like even after it was all known and the perpetrators were, were ta like taken care of, they, she, yeah, she continued to find the video. Um, so it was such a, a groundbreaking expose because what it was showing is that Pornhub may, you know, try to say, oh, we have, they have like different disclaimers, right? Uh, but, but when you look actually at, you know, what they were doing at that time, December 2020, um, with these cases of rape, assault, abduction, there were, he, he talked about being like just certain searches still turning up so much of this really disturbing content. And that was something that came up in the case as well is the, the brief mentioned like, it didn't take much to find content that looked obviously illegal. Right. And the moderators um, were almost incentivized to just keep that up because of, you know, the, the algorithm-driven uh, monetization there. It's, there's so much here to unpack, and we, we don't have the time to unpack it all. Um, but you did make the point that one of the things um, in Visa said in their defense, and I should say, this was um, a, a ruling that was decided before Visa has actually presented really its own case. So it will proceed and they will begin to present its case. They simply had filed a motion to dismiss and that was the extent of their sort of evidence, if you will, presented. So they still have evidence to present, okay, we'll give it to them. But they've, they've said that, um, they, that they don't have the power to regulate 
And that's crazy because when they did actually cut off Pornhub and its main site from using Visa, um, that 80%, you wrote, 80% of its content, of Pornhub's content, had to be removed. Actually, you noted it, but the judge noted it uh, in that case. You noted it in your story. So they do. That basically shows that these payment processors, these big payment financial institutions, do have a lot of power over the porn industry. And I think that's why this is so groundbreaking. Um, Loretta, we're almost out of time, but you, you have talked to people who work with not only victims, but people who are addicted to porn, people who have, whose lives and families have been affected by porn. And they make a, a very important point, and that is that porn isn't an individual choice. It only affects that person. It affects a society. It affects a family. It affects a culture, a community. What do they say? How do they um, raise awareness? And what do they, what's the message these advocates want people to hear? It's so true that porn doesn't just affect the individual. Um, and I think one thing I kept hearing, um, you know, talking to the people who, who were helping those with addiction and who had heard about all these terrible stories, um, you know, related to, to the pornography industry, is that really what it does is it warps how you view people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you, you start to see people as things to be used and not <laughs> seen and appreciated. And um, and especially starting that so young and, and having that mess up how you view relationships. Um, you know, there are all sorts of studies out there that were brought up to me about um, the, the failure of marriages where porn is cited as like a factor there. It, it really does, you know, ruin all sorts of relationships. And then one actually kind of more hopeful element um, in, in talking about this very heavy, dark topic um, is, yeah, there's this group, The Culture Project, that talks to young people about um, the church's vision of human sexuality and the different temptations of the culture. And they t told me, you know, pornography is a topic that is just so discussed when they when they talk about the different temptations and how to handle them um, among young people, even even in like the seventh grade, this this will come up as something that's being that's struggled with. And one thing they see is that once um, these these young people realize that others have have been struggling with this and overcome it, it's like so hopeful to them. They it's freeing. It's freeing, right? They see, oh, I'm not the weirdo, right, that has to deal with this, like, by myself without, you know, someone who understands what it's like going through that. Absolutely. It's liberating. And, and we hope for that liberation for in many respects. So, Loretta, thanks for this uh, coverage of a difficult topic, but a very important one just to shed light. And for our listeners, please go to ncregister.com for, for this coverage and a lot more analysis and commentary that you'll find there. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. And until next week, may God bless you.